0: is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: A very good afternoon to you. Welcome to the Country Hour. Warwick Long indeed with you today. There has been a case of anthrax in livestock in northern Victoria. We will hear from the authorities that are managing that situation shortly on the program with what you need to know. This is something that does happen every well few years or so in this part of the world, but we'll get all of those details and more on what's specifically happening in this case shortly. Also today, crime on farms. We've been speaking a lot about it over the years, but do you think it's getting better or worse? There's been a study looking at this, overall effects of farm crime, looking at the details into it. I'd love to know your general feel from your farming district. Do you think... Uh, authorities are getting a bad uh, handle on farm crime, has new technology in terms of cameras and so forth helped, or is it getting worse? You can let me know. Send a text 0467 842 722. Also coming up later in this program too, the battle over the Victorian Farmers' Federation's internal workings and the management of its constitutional change still under fire. And we'll hear from uh, well, one former Grains Group leader who says who has large concerns with how that uh, vote to change the Constitution is being managed, uh, is occurring. And you'll also hear from the President, Emma Germano, as well on the program today. All of that and more coming up on the Country Hour. You can always join us, 0467 842 722, if you want to send a text.
2: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Yes, authorities in Victoria are managing and anthrax case uh, close to Shepparton. We're going to get all the details on that. Now joining you on the program is the Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer of Victoria, Cameron Bell. Cameron Bell, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Warwick. Thank Uh, you for having me. I'll get to this current case at the moment, but I suppose when people hear the word anthrax, a lot gets stirred up in people's minds. Can you just tell us when we're talking about anthrax in a case in Victoria in livestock, what are we talking about here? What is anthrax?
3: That's a great question, Warwick, and good to go back to the basics um, as a as, uh, useful background for this. So anthrax is a um, disease caused by a bacterium. It's quite unique in that it can survive in the soil for decades by forming um, spores. And um, it, it, it's a disease that can affect broad range of animals, but typically in Victoria we see it affecting uh, cattle and sheep. Um, it, it does present a low risk to humans, with the greatest risk being those who um, handle dead livestock, such as farmers, vets and, and knackery workers. But it is a, um, an, an infection that we do see from time to time. And, and that's because of this um, unique feature of it to develop spores and survive for a long time and then um, infect animals under certain conditions.
1: Yeah, there's a large, almost anthrax belt, isn't there, that Victoria's part of, where there's been sort of cases up and down the East Coast?
3: You're right about that um, anthrax belt and probably representing historical movements of cattle over the last um, um, sort of 100-plus years. Um, But no, certainly in Victoria, historically, we've had to ride across the state, more so typically in in recent decades in northern Victoria. Um, But really, it's a... It's an important reminder that, you know, any unexplained sudden deaths anywhere in Victoria should be um, investigated and have anthrax ruled out. Um, But, yeah, certainly in this case... um, Yeah, take us to
1: this case. What's happened here? It's close to Shepparton, is that right?
3: No, that's right. So, um, AGVIC staff responding to the um, detection of anthrax on a single beef property that's um, in the Shepparton region... Um we received the reports on Thursday afternoon and to date uh five cattle deaths have been recorded on the property. Uh but thank the early reporting by the, the owner and, and the owner's um veterinary practitioner, um I think was able to undertake the necessary steps to control the spread of infection and, and, and since that initial de- uh or that notification, um we've Quarantine the property and, and undertaken a number of measures to try and um, contain the spread. Um, all the livestock on the on the affected property have now been vaccinated, and carcasses um, are in the process of being disposed of by burning. And the contaminated sites where the carcasses were are being um, disinfected. So they're really key um, um, response activities that AGVIC um, undertake, and we're certainly well practised. Given the um, number of times we, we've we've seen anthrax, particularly in recent decades, um, what, what's also important here beyond the the boundaries of the affected property, are uh, to um, undertake surveillance. And uh, Agriculture Victoria staff have been contacting livestock producers in the surrounding area, um, just checking in with them, um, raising awareness, checking if there's any unusual deaths occurring and undertaking risk assessments for their particular situations. And where um, there is a, um, a an assessment made and um, a, and a risk determined, then vaccination may be undertaken on, on livestock of those properties. And I'm sure some of your listeners um, will, will be well aware that we do use um, vaccination um in in the face of an outbreak but also um as a follow-up particularly in these higher risk areas yeah so a Um, a
1: lot of those properties in the area will will uh be vaccinated or at least assessed to see if that's required um can can you just explain why uh, you know vaccination isn't something that just all animals get in terms of anthrax in this area why it's used as a response
3: yeah. Look, what we tend to do is use it um, in in the face of the response, and then for a number of years afterwards. Um, yeah. Look, it's a good question. It, it probably comes down to practicalities, um, costs, etc. Um, but but certainly, um, you know, producers do have have the option of of pursuing vaccination in, in you know those higher risk situations um, if, if they wish wish to do so. Um, it, it's certainly an effective vaccine. Um, you know, we, we don't have treatments per se and, and really vaccination in these sort of high-risk situations and, and controlling it in the face of an outbreak. Um, it's a very useful tool.
1: So um, you, you were going through a little bit of it when I cut you off, so I'll ask you that really now. The management process from here, what's what's the steps that you're going through as Agriculture Victoria right now?
3: Yeah, so once, once we've um, got all the at-risk stock on the affected property vaccinated and carcasses disposed of and the the death sites for those cattle um, disinfected. Um, It's really then um, a matter of just sort of wrapping up loose ends and and then that quarantine would be released. But as I said, at the same time, we're undertaking that surveillance because... um, the, the fact that we've got one case um, confirmed of anthrax now means that there's al- there is always a risk that there could be other cases occurring. Um, in, in some cases, there the may be um, certain environmental conditions that might um, stimulate cases to occur. Um, in other cases, it can be much more localised. It might be pasture renovation, earth birth moving activities on a farm that might bring um, spores to the soil, uh, to the surface and and expose livestock. So it, it is really important that, that that everyone is really on the lookout and for any um, animals that do die suddenly and, and particularly where there's no ex- clear explanation that they do um, immediate, immediately contact their private vet or Agriculture Victoria staff so we can follow it up. And we utilise a um, a rapid field test that that can be undertaken um, on the spot, and and then and, and private veterinarians in in um, northeast Victoria uh, are set up with these kits, and they're trained and accredited to use those. So we can fairly rapidly um, determine if 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 anthrax has been the cause of death, and then instigate appropriate control measures. Um, it's also important to do that because, as I mentioned before, there is a low risk to humans, but we, we certainly don't want people um, undertaking um, you know, post-mortem examinations of, of, of animals that have died of anthrax. So really important that um, you know, producers do do get the vetted out or Agriculture Victoria so that that determination can be made. And then, um, and if it's not anthrax, well, then that's fine. We can then go through the steps of determining what the other cause of death might have been.
1: Yeah, that's that. That's the easiest way. Anthrax can jump to humans too, isn't it? If if they're dealing with an infected carcass or or a dead animal, then that's why there is a greater risk to to things like vets and farmers and uh, abattoir or knackery workers.
3: That, that that's correct, and 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 that's why you know we we do strongly um, you know, advise anyone that has stock that do die suddenly, um, and and that might be the only sign, just sudden death. Sometimes there might be sort of a bloody discharge from from orifices, but you know usually it's just sudden death, no explanation. And um, yeah, as I said before, really important that producers do contact their private vet. Or agriculture, Victoria staff, um, you know, you can and call there's our... no
1: there's no concern here in this case that that could be happening because you were onto it so quick. Is that correct?
3: No, that's great. Yeah, certainly in this case, um, early notification, and we're able to um, you know, instigate our response immediately. And and really that that's the key thing: being able to put into place those control measures to you know, stop any further deaths, stop any spread from the property. Um, yeah, you know, that, that's really critical um, in terms of our response to the disease.
1: Now, agriculture um, Victoria, you have a specific incinerator for animal carcasses. That just shows you the, the importance, I suppose, um, in terms of getting on top of, of this disease when it's found and, and for managing it on on farm and not, not moving carcasses around. Have you been using that in this case or with only five animals in, infected, have you been using other management techniques?
3: Yes, no, I understand that equipment has been used um and yes it, it's it's specialized um portable um sort of incinerator type or an incinerator type unit um you know, burning carcasses on site is is a very effective way to um a you know, destroy destroy the affected or infected carcass um and 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 prevent you know spread elsewhere. Um, it, you know, certainly it's just not feasible to be moving an affected carcass um off a property. So it, it's a very effective tool. Um and, and certainly at times before we've um you know supported other jurisdictions um by the loan of that equipment. Um so yeah, certainly, agriculture Victoria is well practiced, but but equally, um, you know, private veterinarians, particularly in Goulburn Valley area um, and livestock producers, uh, you know, I think there's a pretty good awareness. And as I said before, we we work very closely with private veterinarians and ensure they're trained up in use of those those rapid field um, diagnostic kits. Um, and that all just really helps us um, you know, respond quickly if, if we do indeed um, confirm a case.
1: And just before we go, is it surprising that you've seen an anthrax case this year, usually with it being a spore living in the soil? We we get a lot of events for, for anthrax deaths in droughts when a lot of that soil is exposed, but we've had a wet summer. There's, there's a lot of grass around the Goulburn Valley. Is it surprising to have a case now?
3: Look, it isn't, Warwick, and, and it's a good question. I think what it does flag is that there are a whole range of factors that do contribute to the um, the occurrence of, of anthrax cases. And you're right, you know, we, we have historically seen cases more so in drought conditions when livestock may be grazing much closer to the ground. Um, and, and there's an increased risk of, of ingestion of those anthrax spores um but we've seen it at other times we've seen it in yeah you know, september um so really it is a bit on it is a bit unpredictable and and i think that the key message is you know, at any time year, anywhere in victoria really important to report any um unexplained um, sudden death in livestock um but yeah certainly it, it, we 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 certainly continue to um keep a close eye and um you know and I suppose, look at those different sort of epidemiological uh, factors that, that could um, help us predict when, um, you know, when cases occur.
1: Dr Cameron Bell, grateful for your time and, and the information and the knowledge you've uh, given to us on the program today. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: No, thanks, Warwick. And, and certainly, um, you know, if, if your listeners are looking for more information, have a look at our website. The two biosecurity alerts that went out last week are there, and there's background information around anthrax. And certainly, if there's you know any further significant um, developments, we'll be uh, providing updates through um, yourself and and yeah, to yourself and through our website. And um, as I said before, any um, any concerns, then producers uh, should be contacting their private vet or calling our um, all hours, emergency animal disease hotline on one eight hundred six seven five triple eight
1: one eight hundred six seven five triple o. That number again. Camera Bell, deputy chief vet of Victoria, taking you through the anthrax cases, the five deaths from anthrax in beef cattle northeast of Shepparton, as you've just heard. There thirteen hundred nine double seven triple two. If you want to give us a call, you can send us a text zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. It's twenty twenty past twelve here on the country. The other thing I mentioned at the start of the program today was farm crime. How's this? The most comprehensive survey into farm crime in Australia has started to release some preliminary results and it suggests farm thefts are on the increase but the survey conducted by the University of New England's Centre for Rural Criminology needs more responses. Project lead Dr Kyle uh, Mulrooney says this survey is needed to help Fill some knowledge gaps when it comes to rural crime prevalence across the country.
4: The Centre for Rural Criminology captured the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey in 2021, but barring that, there's a little bit of data out of Victoria and really nothing for the rest of the country. Uh, We work fairly closely with the rural crime prevention team here in New South Wales through them and through our own research. We know that Farm crime and rural crime in Australia is a, a national problem. It's not isolated to New South Wales and Victoria, not by a long shot. And so we wanted to try to understand this issue on a national level, and really, really collect that important data that will help us address the issue in other states where we really have a, a dark figure and, and a no clear understanding of the problem in these areas. But we know anecdotally and we know from victim experiences uh, covered in the media and addressed by the police that it that it's a it's a it's a big issue for farmers uh, all around Australia.
0: And how much longer of the study is left to go and uh, have you been getting enough responses so far?
4: Yeah, so the response rate has been absolutely fantastic. I think naturally so the uptake has been in uh, those larger states uh, like New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, where we have uh, a bit of information. So we're leaving the survey open a little bit longer in the hopes that we can collect more data out of other states, uh, especially South Australia, Tasmania, Western Australia, Northern Territories, uh, where we just don't have a historical picture and so we want to make sure that we're capturing that with sufficient detail uh, specifically sufficient statistical detail our goal here is to understand farm crime at a national level but also to understand it at the individual level, and that is at the individual level uh, of the state. So we want to understand what does farm crime look like in South Australia. It's important that we, we understand these unique pictures so that we address it appropriately, so that we can empower policymakers, police, and other actors that, that engage with these issues, including the farmers themselves, with the information they need on the ground to actually address these issues.
0: As the survey is ongoing, you might not know yet, but would you suspect there are any major differences when it comes to farm crime between the states?
4: Um, I think you'll find differences based upon a variety of variables. So what is farmed? What are the predominant uh, uh, farming uh, industries? Of course, we'll we'll highlight various aspects and and, and various offences that are unique to certain, certain areas. I mean, you find that even within states, Uh, you know, where there's high levels of different types of farming. There'll be local characteristics that would very much shape that, proximity to major cities, different experiences across such a large country in terms of weather-related events like drought and these types of things that will definitely be attuned to when we're interpreting the data. But I have no doubt that what you'll find is that farm crime is a problem across each and every state and, and amongst farmers there, that they're facing these issues, that they have been facing them for a long time, And so I think that will be uh, an, an unfortunate but universal finding.
0: And are there any preliminary results you can share?
4: Out of the ones that we can sort of definitively, in terms of statistical representation, talk about, unfortunately, it looks like business as usual in those states. For instance, the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey in 2021, if we look at the New South Wales data for this national survey, of which we have a lot, we actually see elevations in victimization. So we see a greater number of farmers actually reporting victimization. So New South Wales Farm Crime Survey, around 81% reported experiencing victimization in their lifetime. Um, that is, they were a victim of crime on their farm. And in this survey, we're looking at uh, the higher 80s now. We see repeat victimizations quite high, so farmers experiencing crimes on numerous occasions across the lifetime. We've also looked at elevations of specific types of crimes in the last two years particularly diesel theft and these types of issues which again relate to changes in the economy you know wars (laughs) the world over caused diesel prices to increase here and you see a subsequent uh, spike in these types of thefts so right now it's all preliminary as we haven't closed the survey so we'll have data of course still pouring in from uh, new south wales and elsewhere but it's looking like uh, what we hypothesized that it would be an issue and you would see growth in in other areas. And, I mean, that aligns with a lot of the the anecdotal data that we've been getting, a lot of the conversations with the police we've had or the media stories where you're seeing, particularly if we home in on stock theft, quite high-level, sophisticated thefts of tens, hundreds, and sometimes thousands of livestock uh, missing, and that sort of bearing out in the data, these types of experiences around the quintessential uh, rural crime that is stock theft, but also, like I said, diesel theft, break and enter into properties, trespass, illegal hunting, all these issues uh, once again appear uh, very apparent and considerable for farmers across uh, across the country.
1: It's a long list for rural crime. That is Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of New England and Co-Director of the Centre for Rural Criminology, Dr Kyle Mulrooney, speaking to Elsie Adamo. Uh, on that list of what is rural crime, Alan sent a text saying, What are the main farm crimes, Warwick? Fuel theft, equipment theft, stock theft. I like the way John Deere make equipment that can be disabled remotely if they're stolen. Unfortunately, you can't disable the sheep remotely, says Alan. Although there are some GPS ear tags and so forth. Now, we've spoken about that in the past. It might be something we should pick up on. In the future, and talk about it more often. Alan, thank you for your text zero 0- zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. If you want to send us a text here on the country, uh, let's talk about animal welfare legislation now, though, because the president of the Australian Utility Stock Dog Society says he's worried about the future of stock dog challenges if proposed new animal welfare legislation is passed by the Victorian Parliament. In December last year, the Victorian Government released its draft Animal Care and Protection Bill, which is set to replace the current Prevention of Cruelty Act to animals, which has been in place since 1986. A new Act would not come into force for at least two years to allow the development of supporting regulations, such as the requirements for the care of specific species and activities involving animals. That's where People like Rod Kavanagh are concerned. He says if these rules are passed, the new bill would add an unnecessary layer of bureaucracy for people who handle animals to do jobs.
5: It's been a lack of consultation with rural sector. It's based on public opinion, especially animal welfare groups. And I feel uh, it, will, it could, have, could affect greatly what the agricultural sector and those who work with stock and dogs, I think it could have a fairly large negative in, uh, influence on uh, how they go about their business.
6: What are some examples of your concerns as far as practical disruptions to the agriculture sector?
5: Because of the new terminology of animal sentience, although it's been it's been around forever, but it's we're concerned that the uh, animal activists uh, they'll be backed by law, lawyers. And they'll be just dwelling and with glee, standing on the platform um, on some of the issues that face those who work with agricultural animals.
6: Now, is that because of some of the wording in the proposed legislation?
5: No, I wouldn't say that. I, I really, although I've read this legislation, it's um, 95 pages. It's, no, I can't say that it's due to the wording. It's just, it's just an ongoing more compliance and regulations that. We don't really need, I'm sure. It's the other things that uh, we are really concerned about. It's making regulations and enforcing such things as feelings of the feelings of animals, appropriate feelings. uh, Got to recognise and the fear and the pain and the stress, emotions, uh, all those sort of things. How is that going to be regulated and enforced? It seems a bit fanciful, really, those ideals.
6: As an animal owner, though, you wouldn't want your animal feeling fear or sadness, though, would you, Rod?
5: It's always been in our best interest to look after and care for them. Um, Whatever animals are entrusted upon us, why wouldn't we? Uh, We're farmers as well. If they they don't look after animals, they won't get the best out of them. It's just uh, a a sensible thing to do and ongoing. It's been like that forever. And animal welfare, welfare is always forefront in all of our activities. And um, we do have a specific and ethical welfare policy for all trials run, and care towards animals involved is unconditionally, Orma is always of utmost importance. It's um, right up there in front. It's most important. And why this new legislation uh, needs to be be a burden to us, uh, we don't think it's quite right. I guess, as you said, it's the wording. Um, there, there's some. A couple of terminologies which are very vague uh, appropriate, reasonable. There's nothing really definite in those two assumptions. And th- at this point in time, the uh, Act won't be finalised until after it's passed by Parliament. And that's a concern in itself. We're just not sure what the final wording and outcome will be.
6: So, how do you think this will actually interrupt stock dog challenges, for example? Do you think that there will be issues with holding stock dog challenges if this legislation passes?
5: Yes, I do. Um, for instance, uh, they're talking of licensing uh, those who work with animals. And uh, the more paperwork and red tape involved, it'll put those who help, a lot of volunteers uh, help to, to run these events. And volunteers are not interested in signing papers and being tangled up with red tape.
6: So you don't think you'll be able to run them effectively?
5: No, not to the extent that uh, we do now. We do work in fairly well with the Victorian Yard Utility Farm Dog Association and we hold about 50-odd trials a year. And to have this extra burden of paperwork and even costs of licensing, we're not sure what the outcome will be and it's just uh, a dark cloud over our heads. over our heads, we feel.
6: So what would your message to the Victorian Parliament be today, Rod?
5: First of all, to please contact agricultural livestock people. And uh, at this stage, we haven't really been heard to the extent that we should have. And I think that's the first step that the government, the state government, should do. I ask, is this new act really necessary? And is it going to make any difference to the benefit of animals? We don't think so.
1: That's Rod Cavanagh, President of the Australian Utility Stock Dog Society from Yale. He was speaking with Jane McNaughton. Public feedback is open on the Animal Care and Protection Bill. It closes on Friday the 8th of March. So you've still got some time to read that. Ninety odd pages, and and make your uh, your assessment of what you think about that. Uh, you can do so if you you have a search on the Victorian government websites for Animal Care and Protection Bill. You're listening to the Country Hour. Let's find out what's making rural news right now with Emma Field again today. And actually, quite a lot, not only here but around the world. Emma can tell you. Good afternoon, Emma.
0: G'day Warwick, let's start rural news in WA, where there's been a massive blaze in the port suburb of Kwinana, which has destroyed fertiliser holding sheds owned by large agricultural trader Nutrien. A spokesperson for Nutrien Ag Solutions told the ABC 11 people on its site were safely evacuated after reports of smoke. The site holds a range of granular fertilisers and in a statement the company says it's assessing the potential damage to the site – and any impact on its operations once they are able to gain safe access to the site. Still in WA, thousands of sheep and cattle will be offloaded from the live export vessel MV Bahaja this week after more than five weeks at sea. The live export ship with about 16,000 head of livestock was on its way to the Middle East when it was ordered back to Australia by the Federal Agriculture Department over security concerns. The ship has been off the coast of WA for about a fortnight, while authorities try and decide what to do with the animals. WA Premier Roger Cook says the 14,000 sheep and 2,000 cattle on board will soon be allowed off.
7: My understanding is that the ship will be completely destocked over the next few days, um, late this week or, or maybe early next week. I don't have any information about what the future for those, uh, for those animals is. This is a federal government or Commonwealth government operation.
0: And after a huge 10 days, the classic camp draft and sale wrapped up at Tamworth's Alec at the weekend. The event saw hundreds of horses go under the hammer and people travel from far and wide to have a bid or to get involved with the highly coveted camp draft competitions. The sale generated more than $12 million for the Australian performance horse industry which saw an 87% clearance rate for the 552 horses offered. The average price was just shy of $25,000. Mike Rowland, who is part of the events management team, said the prices on the sale were lower than previous years, reflecting the cost of living difficulties. But, he says overall, the event was a success.
8: It's just become the go-to event for so many from a performance horse industry point of view. And, and it doesn't hurt when uh, you know there's more than three hundred and forty thousand dollars worth of uh, prizes on offer for for the uh, for camp draft and and challenge competitions uh, across the ten days uh, that certainly tends to to bring people out to their part of it
0: And over the ditch now, New Zealand dairy farmers have woken up to a price rise today with cooperative giant Fonterra lifting its local milk price. The company increased its current season forecast farm gate milk price with the midpoint lifting by 30 cents to $7.80 New Zealand per kilogram of milk solids Fonterra CEO Miles Hurrell says the farmgate price hike comes off the back of five strong global dairy trade events He says a lift in demand primarily from the Middle East and Southeast Asia also led to the price rise The New Zealand price paid by Fonterra is still well below the price paid it pays farmers in Australia which is around $9 a kilogram for milk solids The livestock export trade to Indonesia remains in limbo, with the cattle industry still waiting for the Indonesian government to release import permits for 2024. And it's not just live exports. There's a variety of commodities, including Australian boxed beef and table grapes, which are also waiting for permits. Consolidated Pastoral Company Managing Director Troy Setter, who operates cattle stations across northern Australia and has feedlots in Indonesia. He's still not sure why the permits haven't been released and it's worrying those in the beef industry in both countries.
9: From an Indonesian side, and particularly for our business in Indonesia, we've got Ramadan starting in a couple of weeks. Um, That's our really big uh, beef sale time and we had planned to, to take cattle and so had many other importers in January to be ready to be able to supply that increased demand from Indonesian consumers during Ramadan and that's starting to get get concerning now.
0: And finally a ram from south east New South Wales has topped the Armidale ram sale selling for $16,000. The ultra fine 13.2 micron ram is from Conrain Merino Stud at Berrydale run by Peter and Jane Lett. Mr Lett says he's a good ram and more importantly the strong price is a good sign for ram sales to come this year.
7: He was actually very low mate he was 13.2 so um, exceptionally low but a a beautiful 80s count all over him and a lovely big productive ram for that micron. Well, everyone's seemed pretty positive up there, and and especially around home here. I think a lot to do with the great sort of uh, last few months season wise. Admittedly, the wool market's had a little bit of a a little bit of a stag in the last couple of weeks, but it was pretty strong leading up to Christmas. And on the on the flip side, I suppose the, the mutton and the lamb have have definitely got back in the in the in the right track now, and um and same with the cattle. So. Yeah, I think everything together um, it's looking pretty good.
0: And that wraps up Rural News.
1: Thank you very much for that. Emma Field there with Rural News. Brian McPherson has weather information for you. Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Brian. Oh, G'day, Warwick. How's it looking around Victoria today? Pretty warm, isn't it? it well is, certainly yes. my part of the world.
10: <laughs> yeah, across pretty much all of the state other than maybe the the southwest coast. Um, it is a fairly hot day out there, so temperatures are uh, getting up to sort of eight to twelve degrees above average for our maximums, particularly across the um the west and the south of the state um, but still pretty warm up in the in the northeast as well uh, and then minimum temperatures tonight will be fairly warm as well before another hot day tomorrow before the change comes through.
1: And, and so I suppose take us through the week then uh, how long does the hot weather really stick around like when does that change hit?
10: Yeah, look, it's all going to clear out, uh, tomorrow night. So a couple of hot days. We do have a severe heatwave warning out for parts of East Gippsland. Um, but the rest of the state is in a low intensity heatwave, um, for this three day period as well. Um, so getting even hotter again tomorrow. Maximum temperatures up in the, up in the Mallee today, getting up into the, towards the 40 degree mark and then a little bit warmer again tomorrow. Um, but plenty of, warmth everywhere else Um, so then after that we're in a fairly cool um, more southerly flow uh, for a few days before winds turn a bit more easterly later in the week Uh, but main action is tomorrow Um, there's a chance today we might see you know one maybe two flashes um, very isolated across the state um, but really no rainfall falling if even if there is a odd shower or storm, it'll all be very very dry underneath um, the cloud, but tomorrow when that trough gets a bit more mobile, uh, it manages to tap into a bit more moisture and we start to see showers and storms forming up, particularly about the central parts of the state, um, and then moving over towards the eastern parts later in the day as that trough moves over. So we've got a risk of some um, severe storms tomorrow as well with, that, with the damaging winds and maybe some heavier rainfall more around the, uh, the Gippsland Way. Um, but also, while that trough's um, ramping up, the northerlies really increase tomorrow. So in those hot, hot weather with the gusty northerlies, then the fire dangers are a bit of a worry tomorrow. Um, certainly elevated in the, the northwestern parts of the state, um, looking at uh, extreme over certainly the northern country, Mallee and Wimmera, but maybe getting up to catastrophic um, in the Wimmera tomorrow as well potentially with our fire dangers. So keep an eye out for, yeah, warnings from us and um, the fire agencies maybe later today.
1: And and in terms of some of those changes coming forward, we're not talking huge amounts of rainfall, are we?
10: look, um there is a reasonable amount of moisture um coming down into the atmosphere over the eastern part of the state tomorrow, so uh but the storms when they do form they should mostly be pretty quickly quick moving. So wind is probably the greater risk. But yeah, you couldn't rule out um some heavy falls particularly over sort of places like the, the Gippsland, um, just to the east of Melbourne, that sort of area, with any of the storms that form during tomorrow afternoon or evening. Uh, we might get some heavier falls there, but but wind is probably the main risk with thunderstorms tomorrow.
1: Fantastic. Anything else we need to know, bro No,
10: we're just looking like a, a fairly dry week after tomorrow's event, though, um, and very slow-moving settled pattern um, going into next weekend.
1: Fantastic. Thanks very much for the update. Not a problem. Brian McPherson there, senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the forecast there. A few warnings around to start the week and a bit of a change coming through tomorrow evening too that you need to keep an eye out for, as you've just heard. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. If you want to send us a text, many of you are doing... That right now, uh, Bill at Negambi says the animal welfare draft legislation is concerning. The costs in red tape are likely to be overwhelming, e.g. every farmer will need a licence to cart his own stock to the yards or abattoirs, says Bill at Negambi. And many of you picking up on the comment about no swearing at sheep too. Maybe that's a big discussion for another day. Kim even says, I've meant to get a farmer that doesn't own a dog that's told them, a thing or two to get the sheep out the back. Uh, oh dear, political correctness now hitting the paddock, says Kim on the text line too. Uh, so a lot of text coming in along the lines of the Victorian Farmers Federation. Let's get into that now. VFF President Emma Jamada coming up. But before that, let's hear from a former VFF Grains Group president who says it's unreasonable for a new electronic proxy process to be introduced on the eve of a critical vote to substantially change the VFF's constitution. President Emma Germano has sent some members a digital form they can use to allocate their proxy vote to others to cast at the annual general meeting on February 20. It comes amid major concerns about the rewriting of the constitution, including that it would strip commodity groups of autonomy and centralise power to the Victorian Farmers' Federation board. Former Grains Group President Ross Johns says the changes... Would devastate the VFF.
8: Well, changing any constitution is a very serious, considered uh, decision, and uh, I personally think these are not changes. It's an entirely new constitution. The the board and a a fractured board with three members resigning, five members remaining, uh, deciding to to propose for the Victorian Farmers Federation.
7: What are the key elements of the new constitution that you're opposed to?
8: Well, the key elements are that um, when the Victorian Farmers Federation was formed, we bought, there was four or five different organisations, the Wheat and Wool Growers Association, the Australian Prime Producers Union and the Graziers Association and others all came together to form the Victorian Farmers Federation. And what the proposed changes are going to do and already have done is push dairy farmers off to form their own organization. We're splitting off the farmer voice back to what it was in nineteen seventies.
7: And some of the the changes are around taking some autonomy, as I can understand, away from the commodity groups and giving them to the board. So there are things like removing the the election of directors representing commodity groups to the board and having them having the directors elected by the full membership and removing those financial clauses that that Obliges the board to give funds to individual commodity groups and also giving the board the power to to determine when commodity group conferences would be held. So, are those the sorts of things that you're worried about?
8: Well, the dairy farmers have already uh, formed a separate organisation and can't tolerate uh, the dictatorial nature of the, the VFF board. And I suspect, well, flowers have also gone which was a great pity, and the Victorian Farmers Federation is no longer representing the interests of the farmers as they used to, a united voice.
7: Does there need to be an updating of the constitution, though?
8: Well, absolutely. We need to continue to renew and and move forward, but to change and throw out and divide uh, farmers in a way that this current board has currently done negates the purpose of of a united voice that uh, the Victorian Farmers Federation has always presented so would the new
7: constitution give, give more power to the board and less power to the individual commodity groups?
8: Well, the problem is that the commodity groups that have specific commodity issues are feeling alienated. Uh, therefore, they're forming their own groups um, and dividing the voice, creating um, multiple farmer organisations. The, um, the Victorian Farmers Federation Board is uh, not comprehending the, the history, the tradition and the strength that each individual farmer member and the integrity each individual farmer member takes forward.
7: This vote is upon us. The VFF's AGM is on February 20. What will you and other members be doing between now and then?
8: I'll be urging everyone to um, to vote and uh, vote against the constitutional changes as presented by uh, by the board. Uh, either in person or by proxy. I'll be going to the meeting. Andrew Wiedemann will go, be going to the meeting. I'm more than happy to take your proxies to that meeting. You can just vote directly. If you vote no, there's been a, a DocuSign document sent out to all the members by Emma Germano, the president of the VFF, which has never happened in VFF history. It's an easy thing to fill out, but in reality, it'll change farmer advocacy forever
7: why would she have sent that
8: form out? She wants to win. Um, she wants control. She wants control over the members. She wants to control the, the pathway of farmer of advocacy in Victoria.
7: Is there any message or correspondence attached to that form or is it simply that the form template?
8: Well, I'm, I didn't get the form, but uh, other members have, have shown me what, um, what they've received. If both sides of the argument had the same opportunity, Um, I think that would be fair and reasonable, but that's not the case. There's a long history of how um, our voting is uh, carried out in the VFF. An electronic voting system has never been used in the past. We've always collected paper proxies, had people directly sign those papers. To use a DocuSign uh, proxy with two clicks and it's approved um, is uh, a totally new system. And to bring in a new system of voting for a significant 50-year, once-in-a-lifetime constitutional change is a very unusual circumstance. Now, the chairman has a lot of power in the VFF, but they still should not bring in a process that uh, uh, is an unusual or different circumstance for such a serious issue.
7: So are you saying that Emma Germano has sent out those forms because she wants those proxies to be directed to her?
8: Absolutely. That's correct. So I would highly encourage people um, and farmers are very genuine long-term people to come down to the meeting in Melbourne on the 20th, uh, attend and uh, voice their opinions directly to uh, Emma Germano and the board.
1: That is uh, VFF, former VFF Grains Group President Ross John speaking to Angus Ferley about his concerns about how the uh, constitutional change vote, which is happening in just over a week's time for the Victorian Farmers Federation, is being managed. President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, Emma Giamato, can join you on the program now. Emma Giamato, welcome back to The Country Hour. I Warwick. Uh, you've just heard those concerns specifically around how the digital proxy votes are being collected and collated and how they'll be used in this vote. Uh, are they fair accusations?
11: I think there's a lot of mistruths that have been said for you know the best part of 12 months now. To say that the VFF has never utilised electronic voting is categorically incorrect. We have utilised that before. It was in, in fact, in the election, um, my first election uh, for the presidency, we used electronic voting. Uh, This is a modern way of enabling as many people as possible to contribute to the organisation. Moving forward in regards to using technology into the future. Um, I would say, is probably a positive thing for us to be considering. Um, Those who are using, you know, chisels and and, um, stone tablets um, are kind of missing the point around why the modernisation is absolutely sorely needed. It's going directly to farmers to ask their opinion rather than just hearing uh, the opinions of a small few. Um, And at the end of the day, the members will be able to vote in whichever way they choose to uh, at the upcoming AGM.
1: Uh, whichever way they choose to is an interesting choice of language, given you're the only one who sent out the form saying, hey, uh, give me your proxies for the vote.
11: So it's not um, it just give me the proxies. It's actually a directional proxy form So it's with complete transparency that we are saying we want you to vote in favour of the constitution. Obviously, that's the case that the board is putting to the members. We want you to vote for a constitution that will enable us to take a small step into the future. Um, It it is not asking just to um, blindly hand me your vote. I've been completely... um, Myself and the board have been completely transparent about what your vote is going to be going to if you fill out that proxy form. for there to be any... You haven't let the
1: other side of the sort of the coin or the debate, send a similar message using your database. Hang on, what
11: do you mean... Sorry, Warwick, what do you mean I haven't let... I'll I'll let you know that just on the way in, uh, when I was checking my emails prior to this interview, um, I've just received a a request from Andrew Wiedemann for a, a copy of the membership database, which he did in December during the court case as well, Um, that's the Corporations Act. That's the law in Australia that if you are a member of a membership organisation, you can request the database. They've done that historically. The fact that they left it late and then are annoyed that somebody else has sent something out to the whole membership group, that's on them and their, their manner of campaigning against the constitution. That's not on me. They don't get to say I did something wrong because they didn't think about an easy way to put their their case they, the they
1: were too slow in organising this. They could have, you would have handed that over if they asked earlier, is that? But It's
11: the law. It's yeah. not like a choice. It's the law. And they already have a copy of that membership database, which they got for, the, for their failed uh, court bid um, at the end of last year.
1: And, and so I suppose we're, we're getting closer to the voting day. The 20th of February is when a lot of these changes will be put and the vote will be done by Victorian Farmers Federation members to change the constitution. Are you confident of getting these changes through?
11: Um, I'm confident that we have put the case forward to the members. There is on the website a clause-by-clause clause analysis. This conversation, we've been seeking feedback since July of last year. Uh, we've been communicating that we would look at updating the Constitution well before that to say that you know this is some last-minute change that is absolutely categorically incorrect and false. It is there on the website, clause by clause, explaining what's changing and the reason why the board believes it needs to. So if you want to engage in good faith and actually find out the facts rather than the lies that are being spun around, no details and all this nonsense about, you know, dividing the membership, this is actually a step forward in unity. We cannot have six different organisations in one if we want to be of any uh, influence around the things that farmers are facing every single day of the week. We know that we've got animal welfare legislation coming at us. We've got issues with taxes being imposed on us. We've got bureaucracy on top of bureaucracy. We're at this pivotal point in farming and instead of talking about... How do we create the most influence moving forward? What is a a sound future for the organisation? These people are just saying, oh, here's a history lesson from 50 years ago. Let's not change and let's vilify one individual as if it gives me control and power. Everybody knows that I'm coming towards the end of my term. The, the, the benefits of this constitutional change will not be for me as the chair of the organisation. It's for the organisation moving forward. And I, you know what? That's I'm the interesting kind of little... thing, though, right? Like, it's yeah. just
1: what's left at the end of this. This has been a tumultuous period of the VFF Absolutely. over the last well, 12 to 18 months specifically. Uh, no matter what happens in the vote, what what's left? What is? What will the VFF be after next week?
11: The VFF will have the opportunity to move forward as a modernised organisation that does business like it's 2024.
1: But not and everyone's new. going to be friends, though, are they?
11: Oh, I think that there was a lot of friendships that have been lost over the last three years anyway, um, Warwick. I, you know, it, it, I didn't do this to make friends. I certainly didn't do this to make friends. If I wanted to do it the easy way, I sometimes question myself and say I could have been the VFF president. But- swarmed in and out of events and went to the footy in the corporate box and did nothing, said nothing, rocked no votes. And you know what? For me personally, that probably would have been a wise choice. But I didn't do this for me personally. I gained nothing personal out of this change of the Constitution. I've done it because I care about farmers and I care about all of the farmers that said to me, Three years ago and five years ago, that organisation is becoming the toothless tiger. It is dwindling in its influence. It is out of touch with farmers. It is not modern. It is not fit for purpose. It's not forward thinking. And I said, OK, I'm going to put my hand up to try and do something about it. And all we are doing is putting the choice in front of the members so that democracy can actually play out the way that it should, rather than democracy having been whittled away to a small group in a social club who thinks that they should be in control of the future.
1: I have to leave they it there for time, Emma Germano. But thank you very much for coming on the program and, and giving a response. So we appreciate your time. Cheers, Larrick. Uh, President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, Emma Germano. I'm sure you'll be hearing from her. In the coming days, well, over the next week when that vote is undertaken by VFF members, I need to fit in markets. Let's do that right now. We'll go to Bendigo Lambs to start things off, and that is with Jenny Kelly today. Take it away, Jenny.
2: Good afternoon. Sticky sale here on Heavy and Trade Lambs today as the buying ranks thinned out with two major exporters not operating. No supermarkets and other processors tending to just poke along. Prices for heavy lambs were cheaper by a good $20 and demand got weaker as the sale progressed to the point the last agent was passing in some good lambs. There were 17,000 lambs today, up 2,000 head. Export lambs over 30 kilos carcass weight, 179 to a top of 240, most sales 200 to 230. Heavy lambs 26 to 30 kilos, 160 to 198 to average $180. The ballpark cost for all these lambs, 620 to 650 cents. Trade lambs to processors were backed by five to twelve, best twenty four to twenty six kilos, one fifty one to one sixty eight. There was still some good restocking support for store lambs at sixty to one hundred and ten for decent light types, and one hundred and twenty to one hundred and forty for grown lambs with frame. Sheep sale was cheaper again. It was light mutton which took a fair cut today. Heavy use seventy six to ninety five dollars. Light sheep thirty to sixty. Most mutton two twenty to two sixty cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA.
1: Thanks,
9: Jenny. Let's go to Packenham and Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers increased to 1,520. That's 270 more with the usual buying group operating in a cheaper market. Quality declined with secondary cattle well supplied. Trade cattle eased 10 to 20 cents. Ground steers and bullocks lost 5 to 10. Manufacturing steers were back 5 to 15 cents. Cows slipped 25 to 35, with processors loading cows for an estimated 381 to 484 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls improved slightly. Veal is sold from 250 to 350, yielding trade steers 295 to 350. The heifer portion 260 to 330. Ground steers two eighty to three twenty, bullocks two eighty to three sixteen, heavy Frisian manufacturing steers two thirty one to two fifty seven, crossbreds two forty to three o eight, most light and medium weight cows one thirty one to two thirty, heavyweights one ninety to two fifty two, heavy bulls two o eight to two fifty eight. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA to Wagga cattle now in Leanne
12: Good afternoon. Prices soften amidst a surge in supply, with agents presenting their largest offering yet, totalling 7,350 head. Export cattle faced downward pressure with heavy steers and bullocks slipping 30 cents and cows were back 40. Heavy steers and bullocks were trading in a range of 270 to 314, while heavy cows fetched prices from 238 to 264. Feeder buyers exhibited waning interest, resulting in a 13 cent drop for medium weight feeder steers, which were selling between 310 and 371. The market also saw reduced competition for secondary heifers destined for feedlots. A price correction of 20 to 30 cents, with sales ranging from 255 to 316. Trade cattle weighing 400 to 500 kilos were also impacted, with prices ranging from 258 to 290. Overall, the market experienced a softening trend across various categories, reflecting the dynamics of supply and demand. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA.
1: Lucky last today, Mortlake cattle. Take it away, Chris Agnew. Thanks,
13: Warwick. Agents chartered 2,827 head at Mortlake, a similar number to last week's offering. However, the quality was not quite as good as last week's offering. All the regular processes were active in a market that was softer with cattle to the trade. And grown cattle backed by 20 cents a kilo. Manufacturing steers came back by 20 to 30 cents, with the secondary cattle softer again. Cows lost 35 to 40 cents over most categories, and the bulls slipped 50 cents. This week's offering of velas made between 255 and 345. Trade steers and heifers making between 260 and 310, and the grown cattle topped at 298 cents manufacturing steers sold up to 270 cents heavy beef cows 225 to 245 with the medium weights between 180 and 220 dairy cows were generally between 160 and 220 and the grown beef bulls to two dollars at mortlake this is chris agner reporting for
1: mla thanks very much for that chris that's almost all the time we have for you at the country out today tune in tomorrow we'll be at crown for the australian dairy conference The head of the Ukrainian dairy industry will speak to us. Hope you can join us. It should be a great interview.